best nights when one drink with the girls turns into a bottle, but you need your car for brunch the next day. There's pickup. Or at Friday work drinks, where you don't want to leave your car with expensive tools at the pub. There's pickup. Don't miss out on the fun. Get a pickup. Simply book on our app and we'll pick you up to drive you and your car home. Two drivers arrive, one drives you home in your car, and the other driver follows. Download the Pickup app today. That's PKUP and wake up worry-free. Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. You're listening to V8 Insiders. From the racetracks across Australia, and here's Inside Supercars. Welcome to Inside Supercars, Tony Whitlock, Craig Gravel, and we're joined by one of the big names in motorsport in Australia, that being Tony Quinn, a man who has uh, carved a niche that uh, is uh, very large uh, in a whole bunch of different ways. Welcome to Inside Supercars again, Tony Quinn. Yeah, good to be here. I'm not so sure that my name's that big. It's only, it's only Tony Quinn. I mean, if you're a name like... Andrew Mitchell, Papadopoulos, Sputnik—that's a long name. But Tony Quinn's not a, not a big name. <laughs> Don't be modest on us now. I mean, you break a habit of a lifetime, you know. <laughs> it's good to have you here. And obviously, one of the positions you have in the world is the owner of two very, very successful and very prominent racetracks in New Zealand. And Tony, for a long time, it's been touted if we take all the cars to New Zealand, why don't you take it for two races? What do you think of the idea of there being a pair of races in New Zealand, regardless of where they were, whether they were at Hampton or Tarpo or wherever? What, what's, uh, how's that idea strike you? Uh, look, I think um, that it would definitely work. I think they would get the support. I think the Qs love the V8s. Um, they would um, come out in the droves, I reckon. I mean, they, they love that stuff. and. If it was a double header and sunk in a point system, you know, I don't know, that's up to the guys to work out, but I definitely think it would be better than having two races a week apart in Townsville, for example. And I understand we had to do that for COVID, but, um, you know, it would work uh, much better than having two races in Victoria a weekend after each, you know. We spoke to Tim Miles, Tony, a little while ago, and he is a proud New Zealander like yourself, and he thought that maybe New Zealand isn't big enough to sustain two supercar races every year. I would love it. I don't think they would do it as a permanent fixture of the calendar, but I can see, you know, with uh, Pukekohe, Hampton Downs, Taupo, all so close together, easy travel, you can see it back-to-back there quite quite easily in, in as much as it wouldn't cost much to do that extra round and you can probably appeal to a different crowd and, and what have you. So, so, yes, I definitely can see them doing it, but I don't know that New Zealand um, and, and Europe, Kiwi, Tony, and you know how good we are with our money, we, we like to hold on to it. So I don't know that you get, if it became a permanent fixture, I don't know that you get the knockover crowds year after year after year if you've got two rows, two, two races in a row. Yeah, look, I would say that it could hand too, and I think you would get the crowd support, which you know is very, very important to the series. Um, and I think you would get the support. But I also understand um, that in any business, you need to keep it alive and keep it moving. You know, there are some tracks like an F1 
that you've got to go to Monaco every year. You know, it's, it's just a must. There's no option. I mean, the cars have to go to Bathurst every year. <laughs> There's no option. But for the rest of the tracks, if you've got options and they, they make good business sense, I think do it. And there's nothing wrong with with um, you know mixing it up. I, I'm fully uh, in approval of that. I think it's a good business strategy. It certainly makes more sense to be going to New Zealand twice than, say, the uh, United Arab Emirates or uh, America or China. In yeah, terms look, of relevance for an audience, abs- absolutely, mate. In terms of relevance to the cars and to the people, the, you know, the general public and the television and everything else, it absolutely makes a lot more relevance. Um, you know, those were the halcyon days of big money being being paid by these countries to to entice the V8 supercars to come. And let's be honest, you know, were, Tony Cochran was the master of uh, convincing people that they could miss out on something really good. So they had to get in quick. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, but that's not to say it wouldn't happen again. I mean, as the world comes out of the COVID situation, uh, you know, countries will, countries who can afford it will look to attract international events to try and build up their international tourism. Uh, business again, so you know it's not it's not inconceivable that we would be travelling to you know maybe Asia or the Middle East or even America. There are obviously a lot of attractions in going to a new track. Pukekohe has reached a stage where it's a bit worn out. I mean, it was a bit worn out probably ten years ago, but even more so now. Hampton Downs it's had uh, restrictions in terms of not being able to have a rail link to it and things like that. What's the largest crowd there's been at uh, Hampton Downs so far? I couldn't tell you. There you go. But I know that we can fill the car park pretty regularly. But look, I, I think look, I know that the V8s have been to Hampton Downs. Uh, the guys that operationally make the thing happen. They've looked at it, it can be done, there's not a problem. It's probably a good thing, the breath of fresh air. Um, and I think most of the drivers uh, like the idea. It's good for television. It's, and it's done um, enough major events already to prove that it can handle um, all of that stuff. I mean, the early reports about the, the traffic congestion and stuff like that, a little bit like the Queensland Raceway traffic congestion issues in the beginning, you know. Um, I think uh, people have got smarter about how to run an event and about how to time it and how to, to traffic flow it. So I don't think it's at all an issue. And um, But we wouldn't know until we run the first one. <laughs> uh, famous last words. <laughs> one of the ideas that's been touted we understand is there an enduro in New Zealand. Get around back to this idea of having three endurance races in a championship. Mm-hmm. You would think that, that Hampton Downs would be quite well selected and positioned to, to run an endurance race, a 500k or something like that. Yeah, I don't think it would be a problem at all. I mean, the facilities uh, for the teams are pretty good. Um, so I, I don't think there would be a, uh, a problem at all. Topics that are very topical at the moment, of course, one of them is the ownership and the fact that Archer Capital, after 10 years or so in the business, have decided to move on. Now, you had escalated from a number of years ago where 
you're owner owned the GT category in Australia, and yeah. at that stage that you were, didn't have an involvement. I think you might have been a sponsor still of the uh, Shane Van Gisbergen Techno car, but you de-escalated. But now recently have come in boots and all into ownership with the Triple Eight. Now uh, that's a, a pretty big team and a successful team. The reason that you got back involved? Um, look, it's kind of a separate. Uh, commercial business decision um, about before COVID or around COVID or whenever it was, you know, the, the, there was a strong indication that Gen 3 was coming on board uh, fairly soon. Um, they had just struck a good five-year deal with television. They had a five-year deal with Repco. The business was looking good. Um, Gen 3 is going to be cheaper to run. Um, the teams will be a bit slimmer, I would imagine, and um, cars are more cheaper to run. So uh, I, I think the business model for the teams is only going to improve. Um, and so when I investigated, uh, you know, where where would I? The obvious thing, I guess, for most people would be to say, "Well, why didn't we buy in with John O'Reilly?" You know, that would be a, a cheap deal if you like, but. Not all good business decisions revolve around a cheap deal. Um, so I chose to go the opposite, direct opposite uh, direction and and choose the best team with the best drivers and the best uh, crew, best team. And, of course, Roland uh, is the best uh, director of, uh, of, of any team. And so I, got, I, I had a couple of meetings with them. I was very, very impressed. I knew them anyway. But uh, commercially, I just wanted to find out what it was all about. And, um, uh, you know, I, I investigated due diligence, couldn't find anything wrong at all with the business. Um, so I decided to invest. And I'll have to tell you, without bullshit, it's one of the best investment, um, not necessarily for a monetary thing at this stage, but as far as being well-organized and well-run, it's one of the best businesses I've ever got involved with. So I'm I'm extremely happy with um, my investment there. Um, it's not just about the race team. There's also a very important engineering division to the business. We're about to make an announcement of a, a GD3 program. If we look at the drivers, you know, Shane and currently Jamie and then Brock for next year. Looking now at the sale of supercars, I mean, in the time that you, I've known you in, in motorsport in Australia, you know, from the time of uh, Tony Cochran coming in in 96 through the, you know, the benevolent dictator times through to in recent, recently where we've had two or three different CEOs of the, of the Avesco and the supercars business, including James Warburton, who is obviously a highly accomplished man in the yeah. media and the television business. There's this now change where the owners aren't going to be having ownership of the series anymore. They'll have a voice, obviously, um, and it'll be listened to, but they're not going to be able to have the the role that they've had in recent years. Do you see that as a benefit or a, a handicap? Which do you see it going? Oh, look, I see it as an absolute benefit. I mean, one of the things that you need for a good business is good leadership, right? When you have a board of directors of 30 people, 20 people, 8 people, whatever. There's an awful lot of opinions uh, passed around. 
and there's an awful lot of um, you know considerations to take into account and what have you. But that's when you have one um, decision maker, and you know, assuming that they're competent, um, the business will thrive and, and prosper. Um, it, it, it's a very tough job. Um, you know, James and, and Sean Seema have both had tough jobs um, dealing with the teams and the, the Archer Capital and the government and the staff. And, you know, it's, when you have that split ownership thing or shared ownership, it's just a tougher business to, to deal with. And I think um, the teams being sort of off to the side now, um, getting paid for, for being there, um, I think they can focus on the racing. They know what their income's going to be, give or take. Uh, I think it's going to be much, much healthier for the teams and much, much healthier for the owner of, this, of the business. Do you think that it's going to change things in terms of, you know, for instance, Gen 3, uh, the introduction of a new car, um, you know, that the, the way in which the structure was that uh, supercars was going to be helping the teams with the, uh, the cost of getting into the new cars. Do you think that's going to change things enormously? No, I think it's very generous of them to to offer that to the teams. I think it's it's a great incentive for the current teams to get on with um, producing the cars and and focusing on the racing. Um, look, you know, throughout time, teams that haven't been able to compete or afford to compete or whatever, or wins too much, or you know, blame everybody except themselves, you know, they have to come and they have to go, and you know, you, you must always just, um, if the business is going in the right direction, people will want to be involved in the racing aspect of the supercars, and um, it's two separate things. You go racing with a team, and you run the business of supercars. It's two separate things. And obviously, the, the most recent decision, that being to delay now to 2023, rather than putting it a half gap, a stop gap of you know halfway through next year. Do you think that's a, a better decision now? So I think to, to be fair, my plans when I got into the the, um, the Triple Eight business was that the, the assumption was that it was going to start in 2022. Um, going halfway through next year, whatsoever. So it was always going to be uh, the start of 23. I don't think. Uh, anybody envisaged uh, a mid-season change working. So um, I think it's good that the guys will get to run the current cars for this year. We've all we've all suffered from the COVID thing, which nobody knew uh, was coming, and really nobody knew how to handle it um, until we we're halfway in, you know, into the into the process. And I think we're all coming out of it now. We all understand that we'll have to live with it. So a year of getting used to um, uh, registering your attendance at events and stuff like that, you know, if that's a new world that we have to live with, um, that'll be enough for most people to deal with. Uh, and if we're just facing the same cars, nothing wrong with the current cars. Um, we can race them for another um, year, no problem, and then everybody will be prepared uh, 100% to start the new uh, cars in 23. And it also gives the business of supercars and the teams uh, opportunities to, to um, you know, market a new product. And I think you need enough time 
uh, to do that. So, you know, I would imagine that in the event next year we'll have GN3 presence and there'll be lots of discussion about it. And um, I think we'll be ready to hit the tracks in 23, um, maybe with a few new um, venues uh, to, to race at, uh, which will amp it up again. I mean, I think next year what we have to do is just try and recover back to, you know, back to where we were or where we should be. And we can look forward to 2023. Maybe that's a good thing to have extra events like a doubleheader in New Zealand or whatever, you know. I think it gives everybody a little bit more time. I mean, I appreciate that the one thing in life that you can't buy is time. And the older you get, the more valuable it becomes. <laughs> but I think it's a prudent move to to uh, start building in 2023. Just looking at the COVID situation, and clearly you've got business interests around the world and diverse business interests, whether um, no longer in the pet food, no longer in the lollies, um, but uh, the beef jerky business is one you're in, and obviously racetracks in New Zealand. What impact has COVID had? I mean, obviously, it, it's affected the way in which you can travel, but has it affected your business dramatically to l- greater or lesser extent? Man, it's, it's, it's one of the strange phenomenons of COVID. Some people have done exceptionally well, and some people have done very badly. It depends what industry you're in. Now, we've been, you know, our jerky sales have been the best they've ever been because people are not traveling around and, you know, they're eating at home, they're snacking, they're, more people are working from home and stuff like that. So our jerky sales have, have gone up well and truly. Um, the racetracks um, have unbelievably been busier and booked out when they're open, when they're not COVID affected. Um, and the go-kart centres that I have, um, they've been exceptionally uh, busy and had the best year ever uh, on the Gold Coast. And the ones in New Zealand, when they're not shut down, are booming. So I think, you know, I think domestically, people when they're allowed to get out and about and they're spending their money. If they're not spending it on overpriced houses, they're spending it on doing stuff with the kids or doing stuff with each other um, just locally. And I know that, you know, on an average year, I might go to Cairns or, or the Whitsundays, you know, once, perhaps. Um, in the past two years, I've probably gone there five or six times, maybe more. Um, so I think there's a fair bit of that going on as well. You know, it's, it's, I think there's numbers like 60 billion a year uh, went offshore in tourism, you know, traveling overseas, 60 billion. Now, people can't do that for the past year and a bit, or two years. And that's over, some of that's been spent domestically. So, you know, I, I think there was a lot of doom and gloom in the very beginning of COVID, uh, rightfully so, because nobody knew what, you know, how can you shut down a country? But um, the government did a great job with the job keeper and job seeker and whatever else. And, you know, um, the country carried on, and, and to be fair, it prospered. And, you know, I think New Zealand's got a bit of inflation going on at the moment. I think the world will have inflation, but it's all these low interest rates, and you know, everybody's telling you that they won't go up for years to come, which is unusual in itself because 
historically, that's what happened. We have inflation, interest rates go up. So um, we've yet to see those those you know playing cards play out. Um, it'll be interesting. I think it's just a new new way of uh, dealing with the economy. Um, you know, it's uh, it won't affect me much. Uh, you know, I I think I could afford to live to two hundred ninety-seven or something. So it's not going to affect me at all personally. Um, but I I don't see a lot of people. I, I don't see as many people suffering as I thought there would be. Fully that. I I think it's that thing that it would appear now is already becoming uh, apparent to a large proportion of the country that people working not for a business meeting, but doing it by Zoom. Uh, you know, people, you know, cutting down the amount of travel. You know, it's those wonderful things where we've seen governments quoting figures of, you know, far less pollution. Well, it's nothing to do with anything they've done. It's the very fact that less people are travelling by plane or car that, <laughs> you know, pollution is going yeah. down. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very good point, mate. Absolutely, you're, you're quite right. And, you know, I think we used to spend about, Close to, close to the, the businesses used to spend close to half a million dollars a year in travel expenses. Um, I think it would be ten dollars fifty. You know, for the past couple of years, it's been nothing. So you're quite right. I mean, Zoom has been a, a tremendous phenomenon that's uh, taken over our business uh, meetings and greetings and everything. It's been a tremendous thing. Do you think it's likely that this will sustain? I mean, you, you you know as well as I do in business that when people get to a smarter stage, they don't necessarily maintain it. <clears throat> they slip back into old ways and things like that. But do you think it's possible that we will actually maintain this smarter way of doing things? I absolutely think, Ned. I think these younger people, probably not uh, our generation, Tony, you know, we'll probably slip back into what we always did. Um or wanted to do or tried to do. But I definitely think the middle generation and the young generation will absolutely adopt the new ways of doing things. And there will be new jobs created and old jobs disappear. And, you know, it's just the ever-evolving state of, of human beings on Earth. You know, we've, we've evolved something incredible in the past 2,000 years, you know, 5,000 years, whatever, even the past 100 years. You know, 20 years ago, people can't live without it anymore. You know, mobile phones, they're only 20 years old. You know, it's 30 years old, but the iPhone's only, I think, 18 years old or whatever it is. I mean, it's just incredible, the whole world. So, look, I have no doubt that the younger generations will embrace it and get on with it and have different values on different things that we had. And as all coots, we'll just have to hang on to the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a sneaky question. Um, I don't know is the honest answer. Um, but look, I think we, I have the ability, because of the racetracks that I own, I've got the ability to see what works and what doesn't work. Um, but the problem is that what I would like to do in the, in the motorsport arena, the authorities currently don't allow you to do it because of whatever reason or, you know, they don't approve of it or they haven't sanctioned that or whatever it is. But for sure, um, in New Zealand, we have a, a membership model. Um, and that's a bit like a golf course. It's the only one in the Southern Hemisphere. 
Um, we have over 400 members between our two tracks, and that will probably grow to something like 600 members that each pay a green fee each year to have an involvement in the track and have, have you know, huge discounted you know, usage of the tracks. It's worked very successfully, um, but you have to, you have to actually build, create the tracks so that people actually want to go to them and use them at that level. And then, so, so that takes care of, the, if you like, the corporate competitor or, you know, that kind of thing. And then you have to actually get the, the spectators interested. And I've long thought that we have these three-day um, race meetings that have been evolved because the promoters need 10 categories to make it pay for the weekend. You know, it's a numbers game. And no spectator comes and watches three days of motor racing, particularly when there's long breaks in between. Um, in New Zealand, um, I tried to invent a thing. We actually registered the name, believe it or not, Fast and Furious Racing, which was like six lap races, uh, you know, with a, a standing start. Halfway, the third lap would be a safety car compulsory and then a rolling start to the finish. And because the people, if you've ever gone to a race meeting without a VIP pass or corporate seat or whatever, and sit in the grass knoll and listen to a tannoy that you can't hear what they're saying, um, and you sit there in the heat or the rain or the cold, and you watch cars go round and round, it's not that exciting, to be fair. So if you want to get the public back watching, you have to create something like Big Bash Cricket or, you know, the One Day Series. And, you know, like, you can't just keep doing what you've been doing for years and expect people to keep going to see it. Because the younger generation now, they've all got iPhones and they've all got YouTube and they've all played games. It's like, it's, it's a different world. So they are not going to go out to Queensland Raceway sit in the bloody bank and watch cars go round and round. The people that do that are the oldest people. They've got nothing else to do. So, uh, that, uh, but to get all that together and make the authorities accept that as a, as a safe sport or whatever, you know, we have to get back to the gladiators. Coming from a speedway background, you're just uh, preaching to the chorus Saturday night, four hours of yeah. racing maximum, uh, a couple of heats and a feature race. That's it. You've nailed it. Because when you think of it, you know, people go and watch a rugby match. It's only a couple of hours and they've done and they've had their pie, they've had their drink, they've shouted at somebody, at the ref usually, and somebody's won and home they go. A hundred percent. So watch the space. <laughs> Tony, one thing has always uh, intrigued me. Um, since I first met uh, Chris Watson and Tony Roberts, which I imagine would be 10, 15 years ago, uh, before they actually had built the track at Hampton Downs, um, <clears throat> and that was talking to them, and literally it was when the first scrapers were going around the track, and they sat down with me and talked about how they decided to do it. They went on a world trip and saw the way golf clubs were, were financed and that's how they decided to build it, building those apartments there, those four blocks of apartments. And, I mean, there were so many people in Australia who were critical of it and said, oh, that'll never work. Why would you want to go and stay at a racetrack? Well, as you well know, it's a great success and there were 
departments that changed hands three times before the track was even open. Had you looked yeah. at that sort of a uh, idea for, say, Highland Park? Well, no, Highlands, Highlands has got its own version of that, where, it, where individual people have bought plots of land and built man caves for one of that. The reality is that the Hampton Downs experiment didn't work. I mean, when I bought it, it was $35 million in debt. So I don't think we can claim that it actually worked. Um, you know, because somebody had to pay for that, and it was the Bank of New Zealand that took a hit on that whole deal. Um, and I, like, when I have an apartment on the track there at Hampton Downs, um, it's it's very noisy, it's too noisy, and it's not enjoyable to stay there when there's a race meeting on. So I think it's a flawed um, theory, to be perfectly honest. And financially, it, it didn't work, and the only time that the apartments, uh, well, the apartments sold you clear right twice before it was even built, because of the excitement, right? But then when it actually got built and it wasn't as exciting as everybody thought it was going to be, the values of the apartments uh, fell down, yet halved. It wasn't until I um, took over Hampton Downs and pledged to, to make it right and spend the money on it that the, the apartments doubled in value again. And I think they've retained that value. Um, so, you know, like, I actually have a very good understanding of what makes tracks work. And, um, you know, there's a combination of things that need to come together to make it successful. And, um, you know, I would like, I personally would like to uh, build a new racetrack in Queensland uh, that was up to international standards where we could have, you know, proper international events. held uh, there. I think I think there's a demand for that in Queensland, but it's got to be in the right position. It's got to be in the right uh, location, rather. And um, it's got to be the right uh, concept, uh, business model. Because, you know, if there's one thing building a legacy, but it can also be a liability, and that's what you have to try and avoid. So it certainly uh, piqued my interest with the idea of a, a new international track, and I'd certainly... Uh make sure that my pass would be well and truly up to date to get there. Um, Tony Quinn, thank you so much for joining us and giving us an insight into so many of these subjects. It's wonderful to always talk to you. I enjoy it enormously and I hope that all our listeners on Inside Supercars have enjoyed as well and we look forward to seeing you at a racetrack uh, near you sometime soon. Yeah, mate. So do I. Let's go racing. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next time for more or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device. Search Inside Supercars. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited.